Make sure to subscribe to the Open Podcast today ahead of the 150th Open Championship at St. Andrews. You're listening to the Open Podcasts. Hello again, everyone. I'm Peace Finch, and this is my Open Qualifying Journey. In the last episode, we chatted to all four participants of the 2021 Road to the Open series. And this week, we'll have a bit more of a focus on the amazing history of the Open qualifying process and some fun guests. Producer Chris, hello. Good morning, Pete. How are you doing? I am very good, mate. How are you? Yes, very well, thank you. Uh, I hear through the grapevine slash the rigorous schedule you sent through, you're going to be joined by Alan Gibson later on. That's exactly right, to the minute. He's a, a fascinating story and someone who's, um, well, he set the standard in longevity and open qualifying, I'd have to say, but we'll, we'll find out more about him later. He set the standard of longevity. Okay, that's an interesting teaser into him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, look forward to that. Um, but we'll also be chatting to two people at the RNA who are largely responsible for the whole process of open qualifying and... I'm going to be finding this very, very interesting just to hear about the behind the scenes process and what it actually takes to host such a massive event. We'll find out more, but it's not just one event, is it? It's, well, in regional qualifying, it's 13 in 13 different <laughs> parts of Great Britain. Yeah, and then down to the, the final qualifiers as well. And then obviously funneling everyone into the main Open Championship. So, yeah, that's going to be, yeah, I think that's going to be an interesting conversation, which, you know what? How about we have that right now? I'm thrilled to say we are joined today by two people who have a big part to play in open qualifying. The head of qualifying at the RNA, George Whale, and the entries manager, Jonathan Tippett. Aylmer, gentlemen, hello, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Peter. Thanks, Pete. Good to be here. Yeah. Oh, well, that was uh, that was quite the intro. Fantastic. I can cut into that, can't we, Chris? Right, okay. Whew. Yeah. So, one take. Yeah, one take, one take wonder. <laughs> People will never know. So how long have you guys been working with the RNA and working on qualifying? I don't mind going first, Jay. I've been yeah, sure. for five years, five years now. I've joined in 2017. I've been I've been working since 2001. So Lytham, uh, David Deval, Lytham was my first open. And it's been, it's been mainly entries and helping out with qualifying, but uh, the entry side really is the main part of my job. Okay, 2001, that frighteningly seems like not that long ago, and yet it is now over 20 years. Wow. I know. I know. I'm, I'm becoming one of the granddads now in championships. When I first started, obviously, there was two or three new starts, and now I'm about the third longest-serving member of staff in championships, which is just, yeah, bizarre. Are you a mainstay? Whenever you go to work the Open, you expect to see Jonathan there. Yeah, well, I'm, I I hide away uh, usually. Um, w- w- once the open starts for real, my job is really done. I, I don't need to deal with entries, so I I work in the rules radio base, which is hidden away in a porter cabin. So I've not seen any live golf for about ten years at the open because I'm in a porter cabin on a yeah, radio. I, Im- I imagine that if you are looking for somewhere to hide, the rules radio base in any sport really is probably is probably the place to go. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't imagine hundreds of people flocking there just to see that little hut. <laughs> no, and there's a lot of security as well. I, I can imagine. I, I, I can imagine the amount of security needed 
for the radio rules quarter cabin <laughs> at the open. It must be a veritable Fort Knox um, to get through. Um, <laughs> in our latest episode for the Road to the Open and delved into the nitty-gritty about uh, kind of qualifying, but George, could you give us a kind of an overview of the qualifying process for people who might not be familiar with it? Yeah, of course, Pete. So the Open Qualifying Series comprises of 16 events in 11 countries. Uh, from these events, a minimum of 46 players earn their spot into the Open. Um, whilst it's one series, it's perhaps easier to break it down into qualifying via international tour events, um, of which there's 12 events, and then four final qualifiers. So in your scenario, Pete, um, obviously frequently entered the Open, you're trying to qualify via one of the four final qualifiers. Um, and as you know, to reach final qualifying, you have to earn your spot via open regional qualifying or an exemption. Um, open regional qualifying is open to any professional golfer or amateur with a handicap index of 0.4 or better. Um, regional qualifying is played over 18 holes at 13 venues across Great Britain and Ireland, all on the same day. The number of spots at each venue into FQ is determined by how many players tee off at each RQ. And if successful, you join exempt golfers a week later at Open Final Qualifying, which is played at four venues located strategically across England and Scotland with a minimum of three players then qualifying for the Open from each of those venues. It is as easy as that. I think probably my <laughs> my main concern for this year going into Open Qualifying, George, is uh, is it possible that I'm the only competitor at Fairhaven? Because then... I may stand a chance. If you can like shuffle everyone over to Coldy or something, that'd be great. <laughs> well, being 150th, there's quite a bit of excitement buzzing around this year. So you might have had a chance in previous years, but certainly not this year. <laughs> Honestly, like the amount of um, the amount of I, I play in kind of local pro events kind of all the time, and the amount of people who are kind of entering this year, just because it's an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, it all it is in reality, all it is, it's just a number, like. It's just 150. Like in the grand scheme of things, it doesn't actually mean anything. But for whatever reason, that round number, like that century and a half, people are just absolutely buzzing for it. I know, obviously, we've got record ticket sales to get up there, and the amount of people entering is just, it's just off the scale. Is this the is this the busiest year for entries you guys have seen? It, it's not, but that's because qualifying has changed a little bit in the last 20 years. So. It's something that I might discuss later on, the, 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 the changes in qualifying, but entries in the last 10 years, this is this is huge so far. Um, I think I did a, a report about a month ago and we were about three weeks ahead of entries compared to 2019. So I suppose my concern was last year due to COVID, it was a first come first serve basis for RQ, whereas normally it's, it's, it's random. So... George and I wondered if people thought if they entered early they would they would get their RQ venue, but um and so that's why the entries were so good in February and March, but it's it's kept on going. So I mean, entries are superb, especially the, the Scottish RQ venue is is going to be massive. That means sadly some golfers won't get their first choice. No, but I mean, obviously for the as far as the as far as the Open are concerned, you know, the bigger the bigger the pool of players that are in there, the the better generally, you know, that will be. Um, so I don't think there's anything anything wrong with that. And obviously, like you said, the more the more players there are at certain venues, the more spots there are 
available as well. So um, I think we do have a bit of inter interesting history on qualifying. Chris, am I right in saying that you have a little summary for us? You've been sitting in a dusty library, poring over the papyruses, and you're going to hit us yes. with some serious facts. Yeah, exactly. The hieroglyphics of golf. On the uh, open website, if you go to the journey on the open website, you'll be able to see information on every single open championship since 1860 all 149 so far obviously it's we build up to the 150th open but i've just been doing some research on qualifying and in the early days of the championship obviously the open was a semi-invitational situation and there wasn't formal qualifying for the first number of years but clubs still held sort of qualifying tournaments informally if you like to send their best players forward like clubs like musselburgh one of the original three clubs to actually pay for the Claret Jug along with St Andrews and Presswick and they had the standing and the talent amongst their ranks to send their professionals forward. Um, of course, Willie Park, who won the very first Open in 1860, was from Musselburgh. But just as an example of that, in 1866, he and his brother Davey both had to qualify, despite Willie Park, I think, being a three-time champion already, or two-time champion. He and his brother Davey both had to qualify at an unofficial sort of Musselburgh event to receive the funding necessary to make the trip to Preswick. Lo and behold, they obviously both qualified and then finished 1-2 in the Open itself. So qualifying, even for the very best players, has sort of existed spiritually for the first, well, over 150 years since the early days of the Open. But it was formally introduced in roughly the same format as FQ is today in 1907. The field was getting too big for the organisers, there was 181 entrants and starters in 1906. So it was getting a little bit big. But even despite that, they, they tried for a couple of years qualifying and then decided to go back to the no qualifying, which resulted in quite a funny 1911 championship. I'll, I'll read a little excerpt from The Sportsman. I find this quite funny at Royal St. George's. The Open Championship nearly always seemed to provide the opportunity for record breaking of one sort or another. This morning at Sandwich, another Open Championship commences and already before a ball has been struck, an additional record can be claimed. 226 players being in the championship proper. All those professionals who have any claim to compete in championship events, and a very great number who possess none whatever, are to be found in the list. <laughs> <laughs> I found that quite funny. And yeah, basically since then, qualifying has existed in some form or another. Um, since 1911, so over 100 years, regional qualifying has existed since 1921. And basically, JTA, you, I, I think you probably know this, but exemptions and entries didn't start until 1963. You could probably call it the Arnold Palmer rule, because after 1961 and two, he, he won the Open both years. But I think the organisers probably wanted him guaranteed a spot in the field for uh, the sake of the championship. So guys, I guess a very brief history of qualifying, but it doesn't seem like it's changed that much, really, in the number of years that you know, it's been in existence. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's had it's had some tweaks over the last 20 years since I've been working. When I first started working, we had your traditional RQ and FQ, and it, it was all done within like a week before the Open. You know, you, I suppose it's maybe my favourite format where final qualifying was the Sunday-Monday of the Open. And so you did tend to get... Um, top PGA Tour and European Tour golfers entering, you know, they would come over. Um, so the first year I worked, it was um, 16 RQ venues and four FQ venues. The difference was the FQ had 120 starting field and it was played over two days. 
And so since then, it's been reduced to 72, still 36 holes, but just over the one day. So we've dramatically sort of decreased the amount of FQ, FQ golfers and also the spots decreased with it as well. And that's been augmented by this OQS system where we've, you know, we've given spots to OQS so that the PGA Tour and well, Asian Tour, South African Tour golfers can get a chance to qualify rather than having to fly over to to Scotland or England. The other difference is FQ, the four courses used to be next to the venue, so it, it was very local. Um, and I'm I'm a member. I've been a member all my life at London Golf Club, which used to be a final qualifying venue for the St Andrews Open. So I've got memories of going down in in the eighties and just getting to watch play. That and Jack Nicholas was down once watching his son play at FQ and stuff like that. Stories like that. So yeah, it's it's changed, but not dramatically. But I I think the, the biggest change for the golfers is that there are, there are less spots now, and so that's maybe something that. The local UK golfers are, are less happy about. Maybe one of the arguments is that they're not having to compete against the top top PGA Tour and European Tour golfers. So I'm more interested in, in what golfers actually think, like yourself, you know, Pete. Yeah, I think it's a. I mean, from from my point of view, I mean that kind of romance of the Open of certainly how qualifying used to be, where you know you did go through the regional, then you were chucked into the finals against you know proper proper tour pros at venues which were next to the uh the open championship site you know like i said on the sunday and the monday there is a great amount of romance about that um and in some respects i think oh god that would be so cool but you know the practicalities of it just it just doesn't don't work like that anymore does it you know we're talking about now one of the biggest sporting events in the world you know this isn't this isn't a case of your local pro just chucking on a pencil bag and thrashing it around 36 holes trying to get in. You know, we're talking about trying to get into one of the biggest golf championships in the world, if not the biggest golf championship in the world for many people. So it is understandable. And like you said, you know, when you do get through to final qualifying, there's obviously some fantastic players there, but you're not teeing it up against an amazing PJ Tour player who's just come over to, to chance their arm. So it's... Yeah, I, I think overall, I think overall is probably fairer. I, I don't know like the the stats and the numbers of if it gives a normal pro, and very much in quotation marks, a better chance to get through or not. Um, but I would say that yeah, if you're not competing against proper PJ Tour players, then it must do surely. I mean, we do tend to get between two and five golfers that make it all the way from RQ to the Open, and I mean for me. For me, that's the whole point of the Open. I mean, I, I'm I, I'm a big fan of qualifying. I'm a big fan of it being open, and I'm I'm really interested and excited when players make it from it uh, from RQ. I mean, that that is a dream. The the analogy I use a lot at work is it's like the Scottish Cup or the or the English FA Cup, where you get the non-league teams, and all they want to do is get through to that third round and get the draw against Man United or Man City away, and the RQ golfer that. For me, that's you know they just want that one chance to get in, in in that in that open draw, and it does happen. I mean, it does happen, and that's the important thing for me. Well, George, last year we had a record number, didn't we, of RQ to or to or at least close to a record number. There was a lot of players coming from RQ, wasn't there? Yeah, I think I think five players made it through all the way from RQ into the open, which is which is fantastic. And 
it's what gets us out of bed, doesn't it, in the morning, Jay? To, Absolutely. To keep that dream alive for, for so many players. And, you know, it all starts at that entry form with, with Jonathan in you know, the depths of winter. <laughs> then they go away, prepare so hard and then turn up on in June to, to try and see if and test if they're good enough. Pete, we were sixth and seventh, right, weren't we? We were really close, just not quite. Just outside, <laughs> my memory. Just a, just a few more puts. That's all they would have taken, Chris. Just a few more puts <laughs> to drop. I don't think I could have actually had a few more puts because that would have been a record of the most puts ever taken in open qualifying <laughs> history. So a tough question, tough question now, actually. And this is something which I... I don't really know much about, and I would would love to hear kind of the reasons behind this, is because the regional qualifying and the final qualifying venues are spread out throughout the country now, what, what's the actual process of becoming a regional qualifying and a final qualifying venue? So I think first and foremost, Pete, we're, we're very fortunate that we get to visit the calibre of venues that we that we do, and there's so much choice out there, which is which is a fortunate position to to be in. But and we often receive letters from clubs asking exactly that question: you know, how do we become a, a regional or, or final qualifying venue? Um, it's probably no simple answer, but there's quite a lot of components to it that that go into making that that decision, and that's sort of been validated in recent years by player surveys as as well, um, because. Ultimately, we're doing it for the players and they're interested in the golf course. Obvious answer, but it's uh, number one on the list. The practice facilities, that's become more and more prevalent every year of needing excellent practice facilities. Uh, and then also the location. Um, you know, we've spoken already about the location being close to the open venue or, or not so, um, but it's got to be easy for the players to get to and from both at a regional and final qualifying level because we obviously want to attract the tour golfer to come so it's also sandwiched in between regular tour events so if you're not within a striking distance of an airport then they're less likely going to to travel um, so they're probably the three com- three components that are, are most critical but then our committee will look at other things such as you know agronomic performance could be the best golf course, but if it's not in great condition, then we shouldn't be going there. Um, clubhouse, car parking facilities, transport links, sustainability, and volunteer support as well. That's that's also critical. Um, you know, it takes an awful lot to put on these events, and clubs are extremely proud to to do so. Um, and they need to have their members backing to to give up their golf course to us for for a few days. So, as I say, we're very fortunate that. In GB and I, we've got a lot of good venues to go to, um, but there's there's no hard and fast rules. Um, always open to to anyone that uh, wants to become. All right, okay. that's good. Who's uh, who's the lucky person at the RNA who actually goes to test out all these venues? There's not one person, but certainly uh, our committee that are um, hugely passionate about you know all things the open, but also you know qualifying. They'll often go and, and visit the the clubs and, and probably have a game of golf because unless you unless you play you don't necessarily see it. But yeah, there's no no one individual. I, I would say that would must be up there with one of the best jobs in the world. What do you do? Ah, oh, it's really tough. I gotta go test out all these golf courses for open qualifying. It's it's a real strain, but you know someone's got to do it, so I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Yeah, it's it's a hard life at times. 
that's tough. This is very, very tough. Um, Jonathan, in terms of entries, do you have, do you get to know names? Do you get to know people who are kind of entering every year? Do you tend to see a lot yeah, of the same people yeah. crop up? Yeah, you do. And um, I, I'm, I'm quite a chatty person. You might be able to tell that from this podcast. And so I, I will email back sometimes and I, I'm very approachable. And you sometimes do get an email relationship with golfers or, or golfers' parents if they're youngsters, you know, very often the mum or the dad will be in touch and it's always nice to hear from them every, every year. So, yeah, you, you 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 do get the usual suspects every year and it's great. You you also get repeat entries from golfers who are not golfers and you've got to try and catch them as well. And uh, we, we, we get the same one or two every year that try and slip their entry in, but... Um, so far, so far, we've always caught them. The modern day phantoms of the open. Yeah, absolutely. It still happens. It's, it does still happen. It really does feel like a community, sort of, when you're going through the entry process and you're going on the build up to the champion, uh, to the qualifying. George, I know you mentioned many players will only play in RQ the whole year. It's kind of like their only event. It's their major. Are you trying to foster that feeling um, through the entry process all the way through to qualifying, or do you think that's something that comes? Do you think that's something that comes naturally, given that, you know, it's it's the Open Championship? I think it does come naturally, Chris. I think we're, we're lucky like that. But um, we obviously try and make it as special for the players as, as we possibly can do, whether that's be, you know, the staging or the venues that, that we go to. Um, but ultimately, it's the Open. And before they arrive at the venue, they already know it's a special day. And it's the, the day that's been earmarked in their diary since uh, since the beginning of the year. Um, but you know, speaking from personal circumstances, you know, I grew up at a local golf club, and I always knew when open qualifying was coming round because I'd, I'd see the pro out practicing. I never saw the pro out practicing, but for the week building up to it, they'd be out there playing, they'd be out on the practice ground, um, or the you know the elite amateurs exactly the same thing, and you'd have a game on a Saturday, have a monthly medal, and you know having a drink after, and it's like oh, I'm playing the open on Monday. It's like, sorry, what? I'm playing in the open. I'm playing open regional qualifying. You know, it was and still is people's open, and that's fantastic. And we we want to keep keep that up. But in answer to your question, I think it it definitely comes naturally from the players because they they know how key it is, know how important it is. I think um I think certainly as I've kind of grown up and kind of being a PGA pro and just being a pro, there's a there is something untangible almost that when that open qualifying comes around it's not you know it's not an absolute given that people are going to enter but it is almost something which is if not expected then almost as a golfer you think well you know this is our major you know this is our open championship and as a professional in this country you know I want to enter it I want to you know, I want to see what happens, and you are right. I think every year it does come around. There is that sense of community around it, and there is the sense that you know you do see names on there that you don't see at any other time of the year. Like they're out of the shop, they're dusting off the sixteen-year-old pings, and they're they're having a bit of a slap around just to just to see what happens. And it's great, you know, to actually get people to get pros who do not play for an entire year to actually get them out to an event is great. Absolutely, Pete. Yeah. So 
when the drawer is made and everything is ready, what is the process for you guys in terms of the day? Um, are there kind of small things that people probably wouldn't consider uh, that you guys have to pay attention to? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, could get, could be here for hours, I think. Um, to be honest, most of it happens in the build-up um, before the event, but when you get to the day of, you know, RQ in particular, it always amazes me when I sit back and think how many golf balls are up in the air at the same time. You know, I think over 110,000 shots are hit on the day of RQ. Um, and it's just, it's just mind-blowing to think how many things can happen and do happen during the day. It doesn't matter how good we are at our jobs. There's scenarios that crop up um, every year that are just so unique, which, again, make it exciting for us to to administer. But I think probably the biggest factor is, is the weather, of course, the great British weather. Um, because it happens all on the same day, whether it be regional or, or final qualifying, you know, we are under pressure from the word go that we've got the longest day of the year daylight wise but if the weather doesn't play ball then then we're in trouble and there's a big domino effect that happens you know if one regional qualifying is affected by weather it means that we can't publish the number of spots at all the other venues or we can't close off regional qualifying and determine who's what the draw is going to be for final qualifying because if one goes down they all follow follow through so that's always probably the biggest challenge is is the good old weather mm. are there any are there many occasions that um kind of those regional qualifying events do actually get pushed i, I can't think in my memory of one which has actually been cancelled by the weather in recent years not cancelled we've had suspensions um i think 2016 was a really bad year um i remember a number of venues got got washed out that day and a lot had to come back the following day to complete 2019 had the same same scenario a uh, huge weather front hit Ireland and then up into Scotland so that was a, a challenge so it does it certainly happens and we have Tuesday held in reserve for exactly that scenario so we just roll into the into the next day but we do absolutely everything we can possibly do to get play done on that Monday Anything that you can recall, Jonathan? Any little small little I mean, things? What I would say is that for George myself, it, it, it's the most stressful week of the year for us because, I mean, we are golfers and we know that the golfers, they want their draws and they need to know if they've made the FQ and they want their draw immediately. And we are working through the night to try and get this as quickly as possible for them. And And, and we love it, but the pressure really is on. And so, as George mentioned, when one RQ is is cancelled or postponed to the next day, I mean it's it's a disaster for us. Um, I think a lot goes behind the scenes that maybe people don't know about. But we get a lot of phone calls on the Monday. Where's my draw? Where's my draw? And it's like, yeah, it's coming, it's coming. We're doing the best that we can. So, um, yeah, George and I love it. If it if it goes smoothly, we're usually finished by about eight nine o'clock, the night of RQ, um, and then we get ourselves home about. Yeah, we're usually home for about 10 o'clock at night, half 10, ready for the draw the next day for FQ. Yeah, intense. I mean, obviously, those are, those are some of the issues, but what about your kind of favourite memories uh, from RQ and FQ? I've got, well, I've got, I've, got, I've got a couple. One of them was that there was a golfer who 
quite a good golfer. His name is Anthony Sproston. And he he had entered for years. And one one year he entered, and this was by post, and he had a compliment slip. And it was his sponsor. It was Ron Chalker, brackets, the potato man. <laughs> and the department was under a lot of stress that day. And when we saw that, we just we burst out laughing. We thought this was just fantastic. And so from then on, we were like fans of Anthony Sproston. We wanted him to do well. And of course, that year, he went and qualified from RQ straight into the Open. And that was, uh, I think it was 2003 at Royal St. George's. And so I ended I ended up walking around and watching him play 18 holes rather than watching your Olathebals and whatnot. I ended up following just because of that one slip. And so every year after that, when he entered, I, I would always just send him a wee message just saying, oh, it's great to have your entry and and whatnot. But the last couple of years, he hasn't entered. So I don't know if he's retired now, but if he's listening, it'd be great to see him enter enter one more time at RQ. Those complex carbohydrates is what you need. Um, George, what about you? Any favourite memories, mate? Um, so many to choose from, but probably a different flavour being you know, the international events and how many times a player qualifies and have got a passport is remarkable. Um, so a lot of times when we can visit Japan or Korea or even even the States as well, where players you know haven't got a passport, that's happened a couple of times. That's always a, a mad rush to to sort that out. That yeah, that that would be um an interesting conundrum. That's that. You think you'd think you'd have a passport sorted if you wanted to if you're qualifying for a, an event taking place halfway around the world. So well, how interesting. Could, <laughs> I mean, how how quickly could a rush passport get done? That must be that's an added layer of stress you do not want, surely. I'm sure we've got examples of where embassies have had to get involved. I'm trying to think of an example from the John Deere Classic. I'm sure there was there was a scenario where someone forgot their passport and they had to get it either dropped off or another one made or something. No, you know what? I can't remember the name, but it was St. Andrews. And you're right, George. He didn't have a passport. He had never left America. And he had to get Clinton or Bush. They actually went to, to, to actually... They went straight to like the president to agree to getting a passport, and he and he arrived on like the Tuesday of the open. What was his name? He's a good golfer as well. Oh, wild that it it, it definitely oh. would have been uh, President I'll, Bush. I'll, I'll, he he would have jumped on yeah. that straight away. So any, anything for a fellow golfer, of course. <laughs> yeah. On the tee from USA, Sean O'Hare. And he won the event in America last week. Sean O'Hare didn't have a passport. They pulled some strings to get him one to get you. Yeah. Golf pro without a passport. <laughs> One of the nice things I got last month was an entry from Sandy Lyle. So he's actually entered final qualifying this year, um, which which I, I love. He's actually a bit of a hero of mine. Um, you might tell from the accent that I'm Scottish. And so Sandy Lyle's, you know, he, he he's my god. And so it was fantastic. So he's entered and he's entered, I think it's St. Saint Anne's because... Um, he first qualified for the Open, I think he was 16 or 17, and it was at St. Anne's. So that's why he's decided to go back to St. Anne's and and and, and try and qualify. And again, that, that's another cool story. Um, when a past champion um, tries to qualify. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a bit of extra motivation. I'm pretty sure that's my final qualifying venue as well, St. Anne's. Oh, imagine teeing it up. Old, ba- old Belton Braces Open Championship, Sandy Lyle. That would be amazing. It would be superb. In terms of uh, this year, when are the open qualifying dates and kind of what are you looking forward to the most, you know, given it is the 150th? So regional qualifying's Monday the 20th of June 
Um, so that's 13 venues that day. And final qualifying is Tuesday the 28th of June at four venues. Um, what am I looking forward to the most? I think it's just same every single year is just seeing the everyone arrive in the car park and just the excitement and just absolutely buzzing they're there too early they don't know what to do because it's they can't, they've, hit, they've already hit 100 balls uh they've already hit missed a load of putts they're chipped what we're going to do um so i look forward to seeing that it's always the same every year Probably uh, on the RQ night, George and I and the helpers, we about eight o'clock, we order in a curry takeaway to have in the office. So it's it's a one day of the year that we can have a curry in the office. And yeah, it, it's as I said, it's a stressful time. So I'm quite happy when that day's, once that day's gone for me, my job starts to get easier from RQ, from RQ onwards. So just the thought of having a curry with my pal George and knowing that my life is going to be a little bit easier um, heading up to the open. That's brilliant. I like, you know, some foods do bring on nostalgia when that first mouthful of chicken tikka masala hits, you know, you can just just relax a little Correct. bit. Correct. Respect that. I didn't know that. That's uh, good to know. Official food of the 150 Open is the Balti Royale and their chicken tikka masala <laughs> with poppadoms. Fantastic. <laughs> Okay, George, Jonathan, thank you so, so much for joining us. Uh, that's given us a really good insight into the qualifying process and some really cool stories. So we will be seeing you personally, I hope, as well, at Open Qualifying, myself and Chris. So thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks, Pete. Yep, thank you, Pete. George Whale and Jonathan tippett Aylmer there from the RNA, your colleagues, Christopher. Indeed, yeah. Um, George and JTA are great people. And I love hearing how enthusiastic they are about open qualifying. Well, I mean, it's, you know, I know it's their job, but it does sound like it is something they genuinely enjoy as well. Yeah. Like they're very, they, they seem very much immersed in the, the whole qualifying experience, I think. It really shows that there is almost... There really is a romance. I know you were speaking about it with Jonathan, but there really is a romance about it that's so easy to get behind. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It's just stories. You know, it's good. It's good stories that you don't regularly hear. And, you know, those are often the best kind. You know, those little nuggets of information, those little uh, interactions with people that you just wouldn't normally kind of come across. I think it's a, yeah, I just think it's a great story. Yeah. And we, we found out a bit more about who the mystery player was who didn't have uh, their passport, didn't we? Oh, yeah, Sean O'Hare. Yeah, we looked it up, it was Sean O'Hare. I, I don't know. I mean, every time I do go to the US, I am struck by what a massive country it is. And like, if you if you want any outdoor natural experience in the world, whether it be, you know, oceans to desert to forest, you know, the US does literally have everything. So in many respects, there isn't much need to leave. But at the same time, not <laughs> kind of at the same time, not having a passport is something which I find really weird. <laughs> yeah. Right. So anyway, all the way back uh, to actually talking about open qualifying. So <laughs> as George was saying, there are thirteen venues for regional qualifying and four venues for final qualifying. I will from here on out refer to them as RQ and FQ. In alphabetical order, <laughs> there are fourteen venues for RQ which will take place on the 20th of June at Al Woodley, Burhill, Coldy, County Louth, Fairhaven, Frilford Heath, Goswick, Kettleston Park, 
Minchhampton, Moor Park, Northamptonshire County, Panmure, and Rochester and Cobham Park. Mm. Mm, good li- good listing go. there, yeah. That is a good list. I, I'm very happy with my listing skills yeah. as well. <laughs> the four F key venues are the Fairmont St. Andrews, Hollingwell Princes, and St. Anne's Old Links, and that will take place on June the 28th. That, that, yeah, excellent listing, Pete. Have you played any of these courses? Well, I mean, how many of these courses have you played, I should ask? Uh, you know what? I've not actually played loads of those. I've played Burr Hill, played Fairhaven, played Kettleston Park. I had an absolutely fantastic meltdown at Kettleston Park, which I don't really want to remember. Uh, <laughs> and Pam Muir, I played Pam Muir a long, long time ago when I was a kid. can't really remember much about it. That is one I want to definitely go back to. It's got a fantastic reputation, as many of those courses do, actually. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a great list of courses. And as George was saying, you know, it's... Uh, the process is great in terms of selecting venues for the for qualifying because well it's open to any course really if they're they're willing to and have the facilities to host it mm. yeah i played um i played those four fq venues though i played all of them and i prepare yeah you need to you got to prepare for just for the fq venues don't you yeah if only if only i had an exemption through <laughs> uh, to one of those four i would be set Oh, well, just going to have to do it the hard way. Yeah, that's that's the way. That's the way to do it. You want to go through our key. Mm. Well, I do. <laughs> I really do. But yeah, if I could uh, if I could get a kick to the next stage, that would be nice. And there's one player who may well be trying to make a run at the history books who has tried to qualify for the Open more than most. Uh, his name is Alan Gibson. And Chris, you caught up with him. Let's hear that chat now. Thanks, Pete. Yeah, I'm delighted to say I'm joined here by uh, Alan Gibson, PGA professional. Alan, hello. How are you? Hello, Chris. How are you? Morning. I'm well, thank you. Yeah, it's a beautiful morning. What are you? Uh, what are you up to at the moment? Where in the world are you? I'm in Chester. Um, I uh, live in Chester now. I was, I was going to play golf this afternoon at Wallasey, my, my home club, since I was 17. Um, I'll go and practice t- t- this afternoon. I've got a tournament tomorrow, the first North Region Order of Merit event. So, Alan, you're, you're still playing competitively. How long have you been a BJ professional for? Um, I turned pro when I was 21. I was a plus one handicap at Wallasey with Simon Woods and Bellata Ball I like to bore the young younger pros with. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, and I was qualified in 86, three-year training period, and uh, been, a, been a PJ pro ever since. Wow, that's fantastic. So how long is that? Is that 36 years, is that right? Oh, yeah, 36 years, yeah. And I'm right in saying you've entered open qualifying this year. I have, yes. I tried last year as well. I was at West Lanks, but uh, had a went out of bounds first hole, which was not a nice start. But oh, no. uh, you don't want that. Struggled no. on, but uh, yeah, entered this year. I'm at uh, Coldy this year. Um, I've got nice memories of Coldy. I know it very well. I've played it many, many times because I'm local. Uh, yeah, I, I won the prom there many years ago. So nice, nice winning memories there. How many times have you entered open qualifying, I guess, since you turned pro or, or even as an amateur, right? I was trying to work that out last night. Uh, my, my first attempt was 82 as an amateur and uh, didn't get through there. Um, but I worked it out, I think, in the first... Um, I think from 82 to sort of 2010, I think I entered every single one except one when Ian Baker Finch won at Birkdale. But I was working in Holland at the time as a teaching professional. And I think in the last 10 years, it's been about four or five. So 
I think I worked out about 34 times in, in 40 years, which is wow. a lot, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. So you've this will be your 40-year anniversary of your first attempt yeah yeah it will be yeah yeah it is yeah it's that's funny. astonishing where did you where did you try your first attempt do you remember uh it was at pleasington as an amateur yeah 82, 82 as an amateur but the 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 uh the next year as a professional 83 i actually got to final qualifying and um i was at hesketh golf club I shot 78 71 it's funny i remember the scores actually even though so long ago certain things stick in your head I've been I've been to final qualifying five times. I, I got through in '83 when Tom Watson won. I got through '85 uh, when Sandy Lyle won. Um, I'll go back to that one in a moment. '92 uh, when Fowler won at Muirfield. I got to final stage. '94 uh, when Nick Price won at Turnbury. And uh, the last time I got through was um, when Marco Mira won in '98. Uh, I was at Hesketh. Yeah, well, I was. Um, we spoke briefly on the phone before this, didn't we? Just uh, tweeting the open, telling us about how you, you first, you know, you got nearly got through in nineteen eighty five, and I'd like to hear more about that for sure. Yeah, it was an interesting time because Live Aid was on the. It was in those days. It was a, a Sunday Monday qualifier. I think about nine people used to get through though. Then, then in those days, and Live Aid was on the Saturday, so it was a really buzzing sort of weekend because the weather was lovely lovely and sunny and uh, live aid was on on the saturday so the practice days you know that was involved with that and um so it was a really nice nice time you know in the summer and uh it was uh it was it was warm and hot and sunny um and uh, but the ground was very hard and um it was playing a bit tricky because a bit of a breezy wind you know breezy day but i shot 77 first day and 73 the second day the 73 was a good score. Um, it, was, it was quite windy. It was a really good score. Um, uh, it's funny, actually, with, with about six holes to go, I'm thinking, if I could just par in, I think I'm in the open. I'm thinking, no, don't talk about that. Just play this next shot, play this next <laughs> yeah. shot. So I, uh, I I finished off quite strongly, actually. I, th I think, actually, I think I was, um, I think I was two under for the last eight holes or something. So I had a really good back nine to get me in a position. But, when I finished early on, uh, I used to hang around with Mark Rowe a lot at the time, who's, who's now working for Sky Sports, and uh, he did one five two, and I remember him saying to me, "Are oh, you going to get in with that? Oh, you'll get in with that." So I said, "I think I may get in a playoff myself." So I was getting myself all excited then, thinking, "Oh, I might be in the open," and for about two or three hours, it looked like I was in, but unfortunately, the wind dropped in the afternoon, and then good scores started to come in. It's again funny. I remember things. Nick Price. Uh, was qualifying those days and uh, I remember him shooting 146 in the afternoon uh, you know to get 146 and he was one of the players who, who knocked us down a bit I remember going upstairs for, for lunch in the clubhouse and I was so excited I might be in the open because Mark Rowe was a pretty smart guy and he said oh you think you'll be in with this and all this so I remember ordering a sandwich and I couldn't swallow the sandwich because I was so excited about playing in the Open. So uh, it was quite an exciting time. So you were on 150. You'd posted 150, is that right? I was 150. And yeah. the 73 was a really good score because it was, it, was, it was fast running and it was tricky. You know, It's in Persimmon Wood days as well, remember? So, of course, yeah. Uh, Balata Ball. So although I, I don't, I, you know, I, could, I, could, I was quite good with my 
a three wood actually. I used I remember using a Hogan three wood. Um, I've got some. I've got one exactly the same. It's not the original one, but I just hit my three wood all the way around because the rough was up a bit. But um, yeah, we, we had to hang around for about three hours. So we went into the town because I couldn't handle the, looking at the scoreboard all afternoon. So we <laughs> sure. went into town with a fellow golf pro. Funny enough, his name was Ian Higby, and uh, unfortunately he passed away a few years ago. But um, he was also a, a, a player. He said, "Come, we'll go into town and have an ice cream, take our minds off it." And when we came back about two hours later, it looked like the playoff was going to be, you know. So I had to wait another hour or so. So we had a nine-man playoff, and there must have been about—I won't exaggerate—there must have been probably 150 people watching the playoff. We went off on the tenth hole at the time. There's three nines at Prince's. I can't remember which nine it was um, that we played, but we played off the tenth. It was a a three-wood nine-iron shot. And my friend Ian Higby was up at the green. That's right. I was I was first off. I teed off first, but I was I was conf- for some reason. I remember being very confident, and I didn't bother me really. I was I was playing really well, and I felt good about my game. And so so yeah. So I went off with Tommy Horton and a, and a and a golf pro called Bobby Mitchell from Welland Garden City, famously Nick Faldo's uh, territory. And um, when I hit a nice nine iron to the green. And um, when I got up to the green, my friend Ian Higby was up at the green. He said, it just missed the hole because it ran by about 12 feet. He said, it nearly went in the hole. I was jumping up and down, he said. So <laughs> uh, Tommy Horton hit to the back of the green and hold a monster for a three, jumping up in the air. I missed from 12 feet on the low side. I can still see the putt now. I'm missing on the low side by about two inches. And then Bobby Mitchell hold his three-footer. So that was kind of it then, two places taken. But there was a reserve spot, perhaps. So we just sat at the back of the green then, while the other two, three balls came through. And I think somebody else made a birdie. So I went up the 11th then to play for sort of a fourth alternate or fifth alternate, but I didn't get that either. But... Um, it was quite an interesting time, you know. But yeah, it, I, it's, when I was fin- when I finished, I was, I was very disappointed. And I think Ian Higby said to me later on, my friend who was, I was travelling with, he said, "I can't believe you, you're not ups- more upset." I said, "Well, I tried my best, and that's all you can do, you know. And uh, I've just missed out slightly, but hopefully there'll be other chances, you know." So I, I try to reflect. I was only, I was only twenty four at the time, and. I was playing well, and you sort of think, well, one day I'll get it, you know. But uh, that was as close as I got to the Open, unfortunately. You, when you when you think back to it now, obviously it would have been disappointing at the time. But do you feel disappointment from the sense of never quite making it to the Open? Or is there a, a sense in that was almost a, a catalyst for you to keep coming back and trying Open qualifying? And it's, it's almost an inspiration for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I... I yeah, I mean, I was a strong, I was strong, pretty strong player then. I was playing very good, you know, and um, I, I turned pro at 21 to, to be a player, not to be a club professional or a teaching professional. I mean, funny, I, I got myself down to a one handicap on my own, pretty much. I read Jack Nicholas's book, Johnny Miller's book and Ben Hogan's book, and that, that was my uh, grounding, really. And reading those books, I just had that mindset that I would one day do it. I mean, it sounds a bit crazy, but you always think, I could win the Open, you know. And uh, I remember playing with John Morgan, the uh, uh, ex-professional at Royal Liverpool, who was obviously a European tour player. I think he won the Jersey Open. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago. But I used, I played a bit of golf with John Morgan at Hoy Lake, Royal Liverpool. And uh, I think he was about 45 at the time. I remember him saying to me, um, I can't believe I never won the Open. I was convinced I was going to win the Open. Um, 
he famously led the Open in in uh, 74 uh, when Gary Player won. He shot 69 first round. I've actually got the draw sheet somewhere. Oh, really? Believe it or not. Yeah, and I've got the score, 69. So uh, I knew he was a great good player at the time. But I remember him saying to me, I can't believe I never won the Open. And I suppose I think, I can't believe I never won the Open myself. But I suppose <laughs> you just want to, we all, we all dream that, I suppose. And uh, I always thought I'd qualify and, and win the Open. But maybe that's just me being silly, you know. But uh, I think most good players think that and and, you, and I think you've got to do that so, I mean you know it's, it's always that thing you know reach for the stars and you get the moon you know it's uh, I, I spoke to you about this the other day I, I've always told I mean I've been a teaching pro for, for 36 years and I've, I've been a club professional a private club I've been a, a teaching professional at driving range uh, I worked actually four years in Holland teaching golf I was two years when I was 30 two years when I was 40 and I've always told the people I play, uh, I teach and play with, and so on, and they would ask me advice. I always say, always play the best events you can because if you play the biggest events you can, when you go back to the smaller ones, they're, they're a piece of cake, you know. And um, and I, that's that's the way I feel right now. I mean, I can still shoot under par on a good day, and I think, well, if I could shoot sort of one or two under par at Coldy, that would get me through Coldy. But obviously, final stage is a different ball game now. I mean, the standard's so high, you know, you've got to you've got to be shooting sort of seven eight under par for two rounds that might be beyond me i'd like to admit that sometimes but you know you think well, okay but just to get to final qualifying i i just see it as an opportunity to tear it up with a bit of excitement and a bit of buzz and i mean I, I'm, I'm thinking about the open qualifying now practicing it gives you something to get up out of bed for and go and practice for because you think okay i can do this like you say it is possible for anyone to to do it and obviously tom watson one of the greatest golfers of all time but you know, at the 59 years old, he was still competing with all the, the young players in Turnbury. So that must give you inspiration, you know, from... Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Despite having sort of, I guess you say, like the limitations, but you can still compete and any on any given day, you can make it into the Open. There's no, there's no reason why not. Well, yeah, it's funny. I, I still, I still sort of think, yeah, I, I could, I'd have to play very... I mean, I can, I can do the score, you know, I can, I can shoot four or five under around my home course that's a different ball game to open pressure but I mean I could certainly you know I always set myself a got a goal of um level par or better whenever teed up I would say okay level par or better I remember Tiger Woods saying if I can beat the course you know one under par I've done a good job you know so if I can beat the course so I always try and beat the course but level's quite nice so I always set myself a goal level par or better so and I'm quite good if I'm if I'm two or three under I'm quite good at going for four under so I was thinking, well, if I bogey one, I'm still still under par. So I'm quite I'm quite good when I'm under par. I don't, I don't uh, choke too much. But you are up against these youngsters now, and knocking it forty, fifty yards past me. So, but as I said, my short game's still good. Actually, I'm, I've still got a good short game. The, the, I play with a few senior pros. We go and play a, a game every couple of weeks, and they, they seem to say I've got a nice short game and I'm straight. So you know. Uh, so yeah, it's you live in hope. Yeah, <laughs> as I say. I sort of forget I'm 61 sometimes. You're thinking, I'm not 61. Yeah. But uh, it's just, um, yeah, it's certainly, um, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to beat Tom Watson's record of second the Open just yet, but there we go. Who knows? Thanks, Alan. Yeah, you're, you're an inspiration to us all. And um, as you said earlier, you know, reach for, the, reach for the stars and you might get the moon. That's the one. <laughs> Thank you so much. Okay, Chris, thanks for your time. Thanks, Alan. So, Chris, that was um, fascinating, actually. 
Like the the longevity that Alan's shown there to keep on going to qualifying for so long is pretty remarkable, really. Yeah, it's so true. And what strikes me is his passion for competition after such a long time doing it, being a PGA pro for, uh, since 1982, I think it was, or by uh, 1983. Just a, obviously a lover of golf, a lover of competitive golf. And what better way than open qualifying to bring that out? Yeah, absolutely. And wow, just to get so close as well, get to a playoff to get into the open. Yeah. What, 20, how long ago now that? It's like 40 years ago. Nearly, yeah. Uh... It's, it's, it's kind of funny because that's almost like the the joy of open qualifying is that expectation and that anticipation. And the fact that um, Alan came so close in 85, I'm, I'm sure it spurred him on to go and keep competing at open qualifying because it's just, it gives you that extra push and that extra joy that you get from the build-up, the preparation, and then actually going and competing in open qualifying. Every year there's that chance and you know that you can do it. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's an amazing thing, really, to be going back for so long. And well, wish all the best to him this year, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. Where's he doing his qualifying this year? At Coldy. I think. Well, I think he's doing it at Coldy. So, so I don't have to feel guilty if I nudge him out by one at Fairhaven, then. No. <laughs> well, you know, if you when you nudge James Robinson out by one, then you can feel a bit guilty for that. No, no, I'll uh, I'll rip up my card. So. <laughs> I won't, I won't deny him that. Uh, well, thanks everybody for joining today and hope you enjoyed this episode of my qualifying journey. Here's a little taste of what is coming next time and remember to leave a review and let us know what you thought. I will see you all very soon. And this man has played around his life at this moment is in second place. But like I keep saying, I can't really remember. I didn't document how many amateurs got through and how many broke. <laughs> You didn't think he'd a comprehensive list there, Mike? Well, that is his uh, time. No, no, that, that, I'm not. Uh, no, my memory bank doesn't go back that far. <laughs> that is a real shame. I used to actually practice in the factory. So we used to make a ball out of sellotape. I used to have a firewood. And I'd hit the firewood from one end of the factory to the other and just get told off all the time for doing it. This has been an original audio production from The Open.